Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 290. I had a conversation with Danny Jordan. He is the creator and author of The Capables book series. He is the creator and author of The Capables. It's an educational and engaging children's book series with a focus on inclusion of disability. His daughter was born with an upper limb difference. Inspiring Danny to write a book where disabilities have representation, people are being seen and empowered. The Capables are a group of super capable kid superheroes. Each Capables superpower or quote unquote cape is activated through empowerment with empowerment coming in many forms, such as quote, advocacy, accessibility, representation, inclusion, and equity. Danny has produced and directed over 100 hours of primetime major network and cable TV programming, including The Biggest Loser, Master Chef, Storage Wars, Treehouse Masters. We had a great conversation. We talked about anxiety and depression and what it's like to be a parent of a child with a difference, uh, especially when it comes to mobility. Uh, We talked about his book and about the television show about Instagram and reality versus uh, perceived reality, all these things. It was really, really a great conversation. He also has a podcast, Christmas Countdown Show, which he does with his co-host, Eric Peterson. So it was a fun way to prepare for the Christmas day. In other news, Hey Human podcast on social media, Instagram and Facebook. You can find me on social media under Susan Ruthism, and that's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're into music, check out my music on Spotify under Susan Ruth or under Apple Music under Susan Ruth. You can also buy it on iTunes. If you want to find out more about the things I do outside of the podcast, go to SusanRuth.com. You can sign up for the mailing list there. And of course, if you go to HeyHumanPodcast.com, you'll find the links page and every guest gets their own pile of links there on the links page. And I do the deep diving so you don't have to. So you can get everything all in one place. If you'd like to support Hey Human, you can do so by clicking on the contribute page there on HeyHumanPodcast.com. Any bit helps, helps keep this show ad free and alive and going into the future. So uh, that's greatly appreciated too by me. I'm a one woman show here, so (laughs) every bit helps. Okay, I think that wraps up the businessy stuff. Thank you for listening. Be well, stay safe, take care of each other, be kind. And uh, here we go. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thanks. How are you? I am, I'm doing all right. You know, we've got a newborn here at home, so... You know, well, life life is a little life's a little bananas right now. Sure, it's exciting. Like, yeah, that's one word that we use. Sometimes. <laughs> are you getting sleep? You know, yes, we are uh, for sure. It's just we have a you know obviously a three year old as well, so yeah, they are not on the exact same sleep schedule as of yet. So you know that's that's super fun. Is you know with the you know when we had the first one, it was like oh whenever she would nap in the middle of the day, that's your that's your nap time too, and that's not an option anymore. So, um, you know, just roll, just rolling with the punches. Um, plus working from home right now, it's just like, you're never, you're never out of it. 
Yeah. Uh, with the first <laughs> one, you know, I would, I went back to work, you know, and I was away from home five, six days a week when our daughter was a month old. So I wasn't home a ton, uh, for, you know, those first few months and we had a nanny and all that sort of stuff. And, um, yeah, so it's an adventure. Yeah. Exciting. As some might say. Yeah. How does the three-year-old like being a big sister? She loves it. She, you know, she really, I think she loves it most of the time. I think when she really wants attention, that's when it gets a little, ah. a little challenging. Um, cause okay. she's obviously used to being an only child for nearly three years. Plus for the last, you know, 18 months or whatever, it's been mom and dad home all the time and she can have us whenever she wants us. And now it's, that's not really the case. So, yeah. Um, but she just started school a, a few months ago. So like it, she has a nice outlet where she gets to go and sort of be away from this space and just sort of be a kid, which is really great. It's got to be a strange adjust for children who have spent the bulk of their lives in the pandemic for the young, young ones. And uh, to try and adjust from that just between social socialization and bonding, you know, it's got to be bizarre. Yeah. I mean, that was the biggest thing for me throughout the pandemic was how do you, um, how do you sort of juggle mental health, you know, and physical health, emotional health with physical health, you know, all these sorts of things that you're constantly weighing all the time, you know, it's obviously you want your child to be as healthy as possible physically, and you don't want to put them in harm's way, but you wonder as this thing just was dragging on and, and still is, you know, is with us, you just wonder at what point does this start to have long-term effects? on my child, not being able to be around kids or when we're at the park and kids want to come over and play, you know, it's like, Hey, let's keep our distance from each other. You know, it's, um, it's challenging. So when we made the decision to send her to school, that was, that was really hard on me. Cause I just didn't know, you know, if it was, it felt like the right decision from one perspective or from another perspective, I questioned it because I also don't know what the habits are and behaviors are of the parents of the other kids that are at my kid's school. Um, and like the mask mandate sort of comes and goes. And, and even with that, sometimes I pick her up at school and the kids are wearing masks. Sometimes I pick her up and they're not. So I just don't know. I don't know what the rules are. You know, it's just sort of, um, it's challenging. And I just don't think there's any right answer. And we're all just trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah. I think in about 50 years, we'll look back and science and psychology sciences will have estimated the the toll of the mental health perhaps is, I mean, clearly we've lost nearly a million lives, but, but the mental health toll is, is up there with an equal measure. Oh yeah. I mean, I've felt it myself, you know, I I've never had, you know, mental health issues in, in my life. You know, I'm a, I'm a positive person, you know, I, I take good care of myself, but, you know, working in television and having an industry that, you know, has been, pretty much, you know, it's coming back now, but it's sort of, you know, it, it's fits and, you know, stops sort of thing where it's like, oh, now we're back. Oh no, we're not back. Uh, we're back, but we're only, we can only do so many shows. And now you've got, you know, all these protocols that exist and, um, you know, creativity is such a huge outlet for me. And I think not having that on a regular basis has been really challenging as I know for so many people whose identity is tied to something specific that, has been taken away from them over the last, you know, nearly two years, you really have to, you know, do a lot of work on yourself and find out who are you beyond just what you do to make money, you know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Right. I think there has been quite a reckoning in that department as far as 
people doing a deep dive into themselves, which is an incredibly uncomfortable thing to do. And most of us make those, those dives when we do have the cacophony of the outside world beating on our door. And so there's always some kind of distraction and we have not had that at all. And so left with ourselves, it's been a dangerous game for many. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You start wondering, you know, what about me do, do I like, what about me? Don't I like what, what habits have I developed that I didn't realize I developed that were masking, you know, maybe emotional traumas or whatever that have stayed with me for years, you know, for me personally, I was, I was under chronic stress for three and a half years and didn't even realize it until it all sort of came to a head, you know, a, a few months ago. And I think it was simply because there was nothing to distract me any longer from all of the stuff that I had sort of buried down inside of me mentally and emotionally, some of which, you know, is attached to our daughters, some of which is attached to, you know, my childhood. There's, there's a lot of things. And I think we're all, you know, when you're busy, it's easy. Your, your mind is occupied all the time. And for someone like me, and, and maybe you're the same and maybe your listeners are the same is that when you have a busy mind that really likes being busy, when there's nothing to keep it busy anymore, it finds something to keep itself busy. And for me, it started, it found anxiety, you know, it found depression, which was something that, and, and it was so foreign to me because I'd never felt that way before. And now you, and then you start getting worried about, is there something else going on with me that because that's what anxiety does to you. You know, it's like, you start wondering, well, what else is sort of wrong with me, you know? And there's no timeline for how you get through that, you know, and there's no blueprint for how an individual gets through that. It's, it's so specific and, and you feel alone, you know, because you can't possibly imagine anyone ever feeling like you've felt before. So when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you sort of scenario, right? That yeah. That's why there's Ted Lasso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't started watching Ted Lasso yet. I, I want. Oh, I'm to, jealous. Everybody's talking about it. Um, you know, for me, with having two kids and now a newborn at home, finding time to sit down and watch a show I found is very challenging. Unless that show is you know Bluey or Mickey Mouse Clubhouse or you know Muppet Babies or whatever my daughter is sort of into at, at that moment, uh, watching adult television <laughs> is not something I get to participate in as much sure. as I used to. Let's get into you. Danny Jordan, first of all, welcome to Hey Human. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Sorry to start off on such a precarious note. Oh, no, good, goodness. No, this uh, it's how conversation works, which is the, the that is what this show is all about. It's conversation. So wherever the tangential paths may lead, I'm I'm all about it. So, Me too. I, I'm yeah. exactly the same. That's the approach I take in, in life. It's the way I approach my professional life, you know, as, as a producer working in you know, the non-scripted world is I, I try, you know, obviously my job is to tell a great story and the network, the studio, whoever needs to know that I have a plan going into any shoot, which I have my questions that, you know, if all else fails, that's my safety net. But for me, my style has always been as a producer is to just connect with human beings, which is why I, I, I love so much what, what you're doing with, with your show is just being able to have a human conversation. And I think for what I do with my line of work, that's when we get the best stories. That's when we get the most impactful, real moments. And it's something I pride myself on. And it's hard because, you know, there's a lot of pressure in, in, in my line of work and, and you know that you only have so much time and there's so much money on the line and all these things. But at the end of the day, I trust myself in my storytelling style and 
you know, it's worked really well for me for 12 years. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad to just be here with you and let the conversation go wherever it organically wants to go. It speaks to your point as well, that when we feel, when we're going through things and we feel like we must be the only person on the planet who's ever gone through whatever the thing is we're going through. But the truth is, is that we're all fighting these battles, all of us. We're all having thoughts and conversations in our head and ups and downs and triumphs and tragedies. And we're not alone in that. But unfortunately, the model of the world is such that I think it it likes to make people feel like they are all on their own. Yeah. And I think also because of where the world has been for the last couple of years, so much of it has existed virtually. And I think that's been a real mind game for so many people, especially, and I was thinking about this recently, is that I think generationally that plays a lot uh, in terms of how individuals have sort of uh, navigated and managed their feelings during the last two years. Um, And recently, like, I'll be totally transparent because that's the type of person I am. Like I was talking to my psychiatrist about this and she said, you know, cause I told her, I said, I've never felt this way before. Like, this is just so foreign for me. She goes, well, if it makes you feel any better, the vast majority of people that we are seeing right now is, is your demographic. It is people in, you know, late twenties to early thirties to early forties. And I think that's a reflection potentially. It's just my hypothesis. I think it's a reflection of how our generation grew up is that I remember living a lot of my life with tactile interactions, right? Like I grew up before the internet was really where it is now. You know, granted, I watched the internet become a thing when I was a teenager, but like my family didn't have a family computer until I was probably 14 or 15 years old. And then it was like AOL and Juno and all these sorts of things. And you weren't just connecting at your fingertips with people all around the world. So I think we're torn a lot between what we knew and sort of like in these formative years of, of who we became as human beings, because they say what, like most people by the age of, I think it's 12 or 14 have sort of like become, now you mature from there, but like you've sort of like your belief system in the world is, is really molded and, and shaped by that point in your life. So for us, like our belief system was not this world that exists now. It was, it was still gener- what the generations before us had sort of gone through in like physical face-to-face interactions but then the other half of our life, now more than half of our life, has become connecting with people all over the world, which in the beginning seemed very convenient because we still had that physical connection with each other. But now over the last two years, as that physical aspect has really diminished in a significant way, not to say that it's impacted everybody the same, but I know for someone like me, it's a really challenging balance to sort of figure out and I'll just say like the question that runs in my head all the time is like, what is real? What is real and, and, and what is not? And, and it's so wild to me to see a company like you know Facebook, who's really been at the forefront of this movement, really just diving headfirst into this idea of meta, that everything is sort of like meta in this different version of yourself. And I think the reason that a lot of people are struggling with their mental health over the last couple of years is it really is this debate inside your head as to who am I really? Am I this version of myself that I'm sort of, that I, that I am on Instagram, that I am on Facebook, Twitter, wherever you sort of engage. Is that, is that really me? Is it an exact, if it is me, is it just an exaggerated version of me? And then who is me when I'm not interacting on those platforms, when I'm talking to my wife, when I'm talking to my mom, whatever it might be, 
because those people will also interact with me in that space as well. And now we're interacting in a physical space and you're, I know I'm sort of like going real deep here and sort of like getting into it. And when people probably heard my story, they didn't expect this, but it's something that I, I have to believe a lot of people are feeling. And I think it's why when, if you're scrolling through Instagram or you're scrolling through Facebook and you start to feel yourself getting anxious, I think that's the version of you that existed before this was such a, a prevalent part of our lives, itching. It's like, this isn't, this isn't me. This isn't how I connect. This isn't how I identify. But part of you does identify like that. So I think it's trying to find a balance between the two. And what does that balance look like? Frankly, I have no clue. Uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> yeah. Well, one could, one could argue that the metaverse that he's speaking to has already has been in existence forever. I mean, technically, we wear masks in every aspect of our being. You wear one with your wife. I wear one when I'm with my friends. I wear one to work versus, and we like to think that we are our true authentic self all the time, but there's still tiny morphings happening, I think, oh, yeah. in order to, to get through a, a singular day. Um, with our family sitting down at Thanksgiving for God's sakes, you know, that's, that comes with the whole level of navigating this alternate universe for lack right. of a better word. So I think when people like Stephen Hawking says, it's quite possible we're all in this matrixy computer simulation. Hmm. It's a fascinating thought experiment and it may not be so far off. It's, it's hmm. mind boggling to think about, but also the, the reality, if we look at our brain as a computer, which I know neuroscientists hate when you say that, but I'm going <laughs> to say it anyway, when you look at the brain as if it were a computer, it's not that, that is what we're doing. We're constantly running new simula simulations in order to just exist. Right. Right. You know, and so I think that itch you're talking about when you're scrolling through Instagram and you're seeing like as a woman seeing, oh my gosh, that body is perfect. Or, oh my gosh, that life is perfect or, or whatever. That, that tickle you're talking about, that itch, is, I think, the, the true sense of self, the soul, mm -hmm. I don't know, whatever you want to call it, um, the id versus the ego, going, no, that's, that's the, the fake, that's the illusion. Mm. Everything yeah. around you is an illusion because we don't really need that much, do we? Yeah, and I don't think I ever, I don't want to, don't want to say I ever or didn't ever, but I don't know if I ever thought about it as an illusion. You know, I thought about it as this exaggerated version of self, or I would call it the highlight, the sort of like sports center highlight moments of, of people's lives. But I never thought about it as an illusion until recently. And, and that really started to, to mess with, with my head a lot is like thinking about this whole thing. And, 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 and frankly, I think the reason I never thought about it that way before is because I'd never, I didn't have any recollection of living in an anxious state or in a depressed state myself. So I couldn't, I couldn't properly empathize or even understand what that feels like for other people to scroll through social media or to watch someone else's life and, and feel less than like, I used to have this horrible and, I, and I've come out and, and open, you know, openly like own this is that I used to say, you have two choices in life. You can be happy or you can be sad. And I used to apply that very black and white approach to my life and when people were going through rough times. And until I went through a really dark place that I'm still fighting my way out of to an extent, I 
couldn't possibly understand how far off that statement was and how nobody wants to choose to feel anxious. Nobody wants to feel depressed or go through trauma or whatever it might feel. And it's not as easy as just saying, feel happy. It's not that easy because, and, and, and when you are that type of person and you find yourself in that state, it becomes so complicated because all you've ever done your entire life up until that moment is be like, oh, just don't feel this way and move on. But it becomes so big and it becomes so overwhelming. The waves sort of keep hitting you is that you're just constantly in this conflict of like, why can't I find my way back to me? But then you also realize, wait a second, part of what I'm feeling right now has always been me. Because this didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Like this was a part of me for longer than I knew it. And I had outlets to help uh, direct that energy. For me, being a creative, working in television, writing story, always having tons going on, being a mover and a shaker, having an anxious personality was very beneficial for me in that way. But when I lost that outlet and I didn't have that currency exchange of putting that anxious energy into that, my anxious energy went wherever it could go. And it went to places that I don't ever want to go again. But I also look at it and I go, okay, I can be scared of this thing. I can run away from it and I can try to avoid it. Or I can look back at my life and say, has this always been a part of me? Or has it been a part of me for longer than I realize? And where has it benefited me? Where have I been successful because I have this energy? And looking at it as a superpower that makes me me, rather than looking at it as this huge, terrifying thing that's going to tear my life down. Um, and I say that, and I know that it's not as easy as that, but reframing it has really helped me to sort of refocus that energy and own that, oh, this isn't something that popped up out of nowhere because of a bad decision I made or, or whatever it was. It's just me, and it's manifesting in a different way now. So how do I get myself back to a place where I can manifest it in a way that actually benefits my life in a positive way. Well, you're so lucky that you have that wherewithal to understand that about yourself and about the world at large and and how that hype, I don't know that people realize who are listening, the hyper intensity of not only television, but especially reality television, where things could happen at any moment. And it's it's a constant uh, what's the expression on the boat where you're constantly moving from one side of the boat to the other? Uh, oh, acting, yeah. Well, the tacting, tack when the. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. I know what you're talking about. It's I that know thing. What it's called. Yeah. I, think it's, <laughs> I, I want to say it's tact, but anybody who boats right now is yelling at the at their earbuds. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's what I think. Why we seen we have seen over the past few years, and of course it's been fueled, but the a rise in hate and fear because it's the easiest emotion to access. So instead of going into the deep dives like you're talking about, you just sort of pluck the easy, the low-hanging emotion. Oh yeah. And I didn't even realize that until I started therapy. You know, I I always saw myself as the person that people came to with their problems and I could just help them find their way through it because I'm you know, I've been fortunate to be really sort of good with words and I'm very empathetic. So I can sort of feel what people are feeling and sort of sort of put it all into my mind and throw it into a blender and come out with something helpful for them. Um, so, but when it became me, it became an entirely different story. And I sort of had to do this deep dive on myself. And my therapist said to me, she goes, well, 
anxiety and depression are just a manifestation a lot of times of, of fear um, or anger. And a lot of times, most people, as you were saying, when they have fear, anger, it, it comes out. Some people are like my punch a wall or, or more sort of like physically aggressive where they yell at people. Um, but I'm not that person. I'm, I'm not a yeller. I'm not a, a, I don't punch walls. That's not my, my style. And so I think there was no outlet for this, these fears that I had sort of grown inside of me and this anger that had sort of grown inside of me over a myriad of things that this podcast probably isn't long enough to get into. And frankly, <laughs> the listeners probably don't, don't want me to do a deep dive on that. But, um, so I think that the way that that energy got channeled in me was anxiety or a more intense version of it than, than I ever knew to the point where, you know, I had like multiple panic attacks and all these things that were just so foreign to me. And it just threw me for a loop, but I'm so glad I didn't want it to have to happen. I wish it didn't have to happen, but I'm glad that it happened. And I'm glad that it happened when it did, because my wife was pregnant with our daughter and, you know, I had these, these multiple panic attacks where it just hit me out of nowhere and threw my life into a tailspin. But I had, because it happened when it did, I had a two and a half month head start on working on myself that had it come two months later or whatever, when our daughter was here or about to be here, I, I can't even, I don't even want to fathom what our home life would have been like if I was going through the, the hardest time of it while we had a child. And so I, again, I wish it didn't have to happen, but it did. And the only thing we can choose is sort of how we react to it. But I, what I always say to people is like, you've got to be patient because if you're like me and you're a fixer, you're immediately looking for the answer right out of the gates. You're like, if I could just talk to a therapist and they could tell me what's going on with me, and then I can name it and claim it and all these sorts of things that they talk to you about. And then tomorrow I'll wake up and I'll be perfectly fine. I'll be back to normal. But then you realize that normal isn't where you want to go back to. You don't want to go back to who you were because that led you to what you became. You want to go to who you are and who you want to become. You got to stop running away from and start running towards. And that's that that shift for me really has helped significantly in, in sort of my own individual journey. Yeah. And I don't know that I think for the kids being born now, perhaps this isn't the case, but for your generation and older, men weren't allowed to have feelings about things. Mm. Yeah, I don't I don't believe in that. Um I, you know, that I I've always been a, a feeler, you know, I've always been pretty open with, with my emotions about things. I think that's just part of the family that I grew up in is that people are pretty open. That's honest good. And honest. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's and a great. I, I think that's a rare quality. Like having conversations with my father, he said, Oh no, you don't talk about feelings or, or pain or any of that anxieties, none of it. We have to. And it started for me when, when my wife was pregnant with, with our first daughter, Emerson. And um, you know, that really, it sort of leads us to a lot of what my life has become over the last few years is that when Lynn was pregnant with Emerson um, at about 21 weeks, uh, there were some concerns that, that came up um, when we went in for our normal ultrasound at that point in time. And so we were sent to see a specialist, a perinatologist, um, and she did a, a two-hour ultrasound. And, and during that, she confirmed that one of the, the bones in our daughter's right forearm um, never grew. They don't, they don't know why. You know, They still don't know why. Um, and so I think for me, like in that moment, my life like shifted 180 degrees. My life became so different 
we had been trying to get pregnant for nearly three years and it just wasn't working. And, you know, we went to see, you know, a fertility specialist and all this sort of stuff, which I know so many people have gone through, um, you know, and they basically told us that, uh, it wasn't impossible that we would get pregnant by traditional means, but it was highly improbable. Um, and it was, it was male factor fertility issues, which was a huge shock for me because I'm a very active person. I've taken good care of myself. Frankly, that's something that's just, I don't think talked about nearly enough, uh, in our world. It, they didn't address it in health class. My parents didn't talk to me obviously about it growing up, you know, for a lot of people in our world, especially if you grow up, you know, a person of faith, you think that if you have unprotected sex, you're just going to become a dad. Like that's just the way it is. And so when you live your life, quote unquote, responsibly, and you get to this place where now you're ready to have a child and it's not happening and it's not happening, and it's not happening over and over again, it really starts to, to mess with you uh, mentally and emotionally. And then you find out it's, it's you that is the cause and not because of anything you did or didn't do. It's just, that's life. Sometimes that's chemistry. Um, and so when we found that out, I decided that I wanted to start a vlog and I started this vlog called the dad diary. And I just started sharing very openly and honestly, our journey with, with fertility treatment and, and owned the fact that, that it was me. And one of the greatest things that came out of that was when men would start messaging me privately, or even friends that I didn't know were, were considering becoming kids or, or having kids would text me and say, Hey, thank you so much for talking about this. I didn't even know this was a thing. Um, I'm going to go out and get tested. Um, and cause had I known years prior that that was a reality for me, I would have approached my life so much differently. I would have started saving money for fertility treatment because it's not a cheap experience. And so, you know, that journey with IVF. And then, you know, when we found out about Emerson and the fact that she was going to be born with an upper limb difference, I just wanted to be open and honest because I knew that I wasn't alone. Um, but I also knew that there wasn't a lot of people talking about it. And, and even though me talking about it may not inspire another man to go and talk about it, at least they could empower themselves with the information to go out and get answers for themselves that they may not have done otherwise, or it might comfort them as they're going through, through a difficult time. And hopefully it does start conversation because it's not anything to be afraid of. It's not anything to be ashamed of. Just like own it and move on with your life, you know? Right. Any doctor would say, well, that's just the body, whatever that body is particularly doing. If right. we attach our ego to all of this stuff, women will talk about that. You know, I can't get pregnant. Therefore, my ego is is the reason, but it has nothing to do with that. It's just your biological makeup is a particular way. Yeah. And my gosh, you know, I mean, the, the, I talk about this all the time on this show is that from the gate, from infancy, we are taught about expectation of perfection, mm. you know? And so I find it really interesting because, you know, you're going through this huge metamorphosis, which is exciting and terrifying probably and all the things <laughs> right. and, uh, and your daughter having an upper limb difference. And, uh, and yet, and you also, and you come from a, a world of, of reality television where image is everything. And in fact, television shows where, because you were a producer on shows where it's people striving to be better or, and put that in quotes, you know, striving like the biggest loser or, right. you know, these things that are image focused. It's for me on the outside, looking into your story, it's fascinating. All these mm. moving parts that are so integrated and in some ways ironic, you know, and then <laughs> knowing 
knowing that your daughter, of course, I have friends that also have upper limb differences and they kick ass. Like my friend April is a killer piano player and guitar player and her arm stops right about here. And she has a thing that she calls the birdie and it's a little device that she sticks on there. And, uh, she's amazing. You, no one, you could never tell that woman that she has a disability because it isn't one, you know? And so to me, looking at your life, it's, it's fascinating. Wow. All these weird moving parts of that do circle around image and, and self-love and understanding. Yeah. Yeah, It's been, it's been an interesting journey. And, you know, I think in some ways, me being a producer and a storyteller has has been helpful um, on our journey because that's where the I, I think that's why I had the idea for the Capables, which was a children's book series that I created, and we've released one of those books. You know, that first one came out earlier this year, and had I not been a storyteller, I don't know if I would have ever thought to sort of take this experience we were going through and turn it into a children's book series that aims to, you know, empower and educate. I don't know if I ever would have, would have thought that. So from that perspective, I think it was really, really helpful. And it gave me an outlet to sort of like write and process my worries as, as a dad, but also be able to physically do something that used my skill set and my connections to hopefully contribute to a world that is more inclusive and, and more empowering and educated when it comes to disability but where it became, I think, challenging, and, and we dealt with this, you know, when we first found out that our daughter would be born with an upper limb difference, is they sent us to see, you know, a genetic counselor. And, you know, I, there were a lot of feelings that you sort of have in that moment. But I think the one thing that I always carry away from that conversation with that counselor was that, you know, she said, the sadness and disappointment that you may be feeling right now is, is not your daughter's, it's your own. Um, she won't lo- know her life any other way. And, and the way that I processed that and, and the words that sort of came to mind for me were, I started writing a story of my daughter's life that never was. Um, I started writing her story before she even came into the world. And, and that was ir- irresponsible uh, of me. Um, but I think it's, it's natural. I think it's part of what we do as human beings as we sort of like you know, envision this version of ourselves or our life that we're sort of like striving towards. And the story that I had written didn't include my daughter having an upper limb difference, but her having an upper limb difference doesn't make our story less than. Um, it's, and, and frankly, it's her story before it's mine, always. Um, and it's a story that I'll never understand, um, but I will work my hardest to empathize with her and and other individuals for the disability from the disability community as much as I can. And I will use my passions to storytell and my passion to work hard to do whatever I can to hopefully make this world that she grows up in better. Um, and that's where it has benefited me. So it's been a little bit of of both. Um, but it has been this wild experience to always ask myself the question because I oftentimes you'd look back on my life and what I've done professionally. And, and even when I wasn't working as a television producer, I just always seemed to find myself connecting with people like people who were celebrities or heads of companies or whatever. Even when I was like, I built a children's activity center out here in Southern California called Bright Child. And through that, because I, I ran our mommy and me classes, I started, there were a lot of like 
famous people or or you know notable people who would come to our classes and those people would want to befriend me and then they would want to introduce me to people and it was never me asking for any of that sort of stuff it just sort of was organically happening and for years i've always felt like i'm meeting all these people for a reason i've had all of these opportunities for a reason like you know i i look at my career and how i got to where i did like it is so not to say anyone's path is traditional but mine is so untraditional i think um you know i got into producing because i started i was in a boy band you know when i was in my late teens and then through that boy band i got connected to people who worked at a radio station here in la and then those people got me a job in promotions and then through working in promotions i learned that i loved to be on the microphone and and then i one night like applied for an internship with american idol and then they called me and it turned out that they wanted to develop a new radio show and they saw on my resume that i was working at a radio station and they said can you create a radio show i'd never create a radio show in my life but i said 100% i can do that i was like 22 years old i i had no business creating a radio show for american idol but i said i could and i did and the people i needed to show up to do it did it and then because of american idol i learned how to produce you know and and i got i went on tour with american idol auditions and i got to interview you know celebrities like people from earth wind and fire and all these like epic people um and it taught me to produce because i would book my own segments and so when the call came back in 2009 to work as a producer for the first time i was prepared for it and then i look back at my career and i go how did i how did i start where i was and end up where i got a lot of it's work a lot of it's hard work but i almost feel like this was some sort of story that that wanted to exist in the world and when i say this story i say mine and then when i say mine i think of the capables because i connected with so many people i have connected with so many people on my journey producing tv and when i was getting ready to launch our kickstarter campaign for the capables i hate asking for stuff i don't like asking for favors it's so not me but I knew that I had to. And so I sent out messages to like 30 or 40 famous people that I've worked with over the years or notable people whether they're radio hosts or television personalities or whatever and I asked them if they'd be willing to just help promote what we were doing. Every single one of them said yes. I'm sorry I get choked up talking about it but it was such a powerful moment in my life because I'd asked myself for years I was like I've been so fortunate to do all this stuff but like when people think of producers they think of these like multimillionaire massive mansion in the hills sort of person and for the vast majority of us that's not our story we do get paid well to do what we do when we get to do it and in the freelance world it's like I might work for 6 months on the show and then I might be unemployed for 6 months um yes you look at my resume and see storage wars and extreme makeover home edition and biggest loser and all these shows that you know that are big and splashy but the reality is the vast majority of people working on those shows are just working to get by or they're working to help pay for the next 6 months of their life until they hopefully get another gig um and then the more you move up the food chain the less jobs there are because there's more PAs than there are field producers and there's more field producers than there are supervising producers and so on and so on and so you want to climb the ladder you want to become the executive producer like i was fortunate to become but there's usually only one of those and and you know and it's a very deep pool of incredibly talented people 
And so I asked myself for years, I was like, why is this all happening? What am I doing all this for? Why do I know all of these people? And then the capables came into my life. And I, I get emotional talking about it because it means so much to me, um, more than any other creative project I've ever worked on before has meant to me and I'm sure will ever mean to me in my life. And it was like the story sort of like had an ending at that point, or not an ending, but it was like, a, oh, we've resolved. Now I know this question I've been asking myself for years because it wasn't getting me a mansion. It wasn't, you know, doing all the, I wasn't winning Emmys or whatever it was. I just kept asking myself, I was like, why, why does this keep happening? Why do I keep, why can't I get away from this career? You know? Um, and then it all made sense to me last year. And here we are, and we've shipped our book to countries all around the world and I've sold thousands of copies of this book that all I ever wanted to do was just write and print one book where my daughter and I could sit and read a story with a hero look like her. And now it's all around the world. We're in you know, Japan and Bahrain and the Netherlands and Germany and Mexico and New Zealand and Australia and Canada. And you have all these families who reach out to you and you, they say, you have no idea what this book means to my life. And it's like, that goes so much further for me than sales will ever go because it's the coin of the realm it's the it's the true meaning of what love is yeah yeah i mean it is it is love in its most pure and powerful form yeah it's it's selfless it's selfless love it's empathic love and it's shining light in places so that other people can feel empowered there's no greater there's no greater power in, in the world than that, than, and no greater gift. And for you to be, in my, in my opinion, we are all conduits of, to a greater thing. If we are able to, to, to somehow get into that stream, and some of us fight it our whole lives, some of us maybe dip a toe, some an ankle, <laughs> some jump all the way into the river. And it is unfortunate that we don't know those tiny ripples where they will go. Like if, I think that, have you ever seen the movie Defending Your Life? No. It's a fantastic Albert Brooks movie. It's fantastic. Okay. And it's the idea, of course, is that once you pass away, you then get the big motion picture of every hmm. good and bad of your life. I think it's unfortunate that we have to wait until that, if that does happen, <laughs> because I think if we realized how, just a, a casual smile to someone having a bad day all the way up to writing a book that makes other people feel seen, yeah, which yeah. will hopefully beget animation shows where kids can gather around their television with their families and see themselves because representation is everything, Yeah, you know, yeah. to, you know, the people that are in the position of having billions of dollars and can, you know, provide clean water for nations and things like that. If we could see how even the littlest step begets the biggest change, perhaps we would be better. Yeah, it's something I <laughs> wrestle know? with all the time. You know, when we released our book earlier this year, back in March, and you know, I did a big press tour, and you know, was on you know a bunch of major national news outlets, and and celebrities started following us on social media and, and all these like good news pages on Instagram started sharing our story. 
the momentum started building so quickly. And the day we released our books, Nickelodeon reached out to us and was interested in, in, in meeting with us. Um, and I ended up meeting with like one of the heads of Nickelodeon Animation, who was an executive producer on Rugrats and all these shows that I grew up watching. Um, and then we got connected to Netflix and all these big animation studios, and it all started happening so quickly. And to be totally honest, I think I lost sight of, of my why, of why I did it. And, and more than that, I lost sight of what the definition of success for this work was. I, until recently, I didn't feel like I had succeeded with what I did. Even though I'd fulfilled my promise to my daughter, which was the most important part about this work, was the most important part about the Capables and Ray's first day, I felt like I had failed because all of a sudden the definition of success had shifted once all these people started discovering us. They're like, this needs to be an animated series. This needs to be an animated series. This needs to be a movie franchise, toys, and you know, all this sort of stuff. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't create this to do that. I would love that. I think it would be fantastic, but it was never the end goal for this. And so it was like the finish line got moved right as I was about to cross the finish line. And I started to feel like I had failed because Nickelodeon eventually passed and, Nickel and, and Netflix eventually passed. And these animation studios, even though they all loved what we were doing, they just didn't have the bandwidth or maybe just didn't see what how necessary a series like this is right now. And so I got really mentally sort of twisted, you know, as, as a result of that, because I felt like the definition of success had changed and I had failed and I'd let my daughter down. And it was one of the most difficult things to grapple with. And it wasn't until she went to school. She started going to school at the end of the summer. And I walked into her uh, classroom on the first day and they had her book, our book uh, on the bookshelf in there. And just knowing that her classmates were going to be exposed to that story. I knew that I hadn't failed. I knew that I had, because the whole story of Ray's first day is about Ray's first day of school. And so I was real time going through this thing that I had written about years prior or was working on, you know, since years prior and, and sort of processing my own fears that I'm sure I wrote into the book, not realizing that it was a fear of mine. And then it started becoming a reality. And so I'm processing it all in real time. And then part of my goal for the series was to hopefully contribute to this world that by the time Emmy went to school, that it would be a more inclusive world and that she would be surrounded by people who had been exposed to, you know, her disability specifically. So that way when they saw her, they wouldn't look at it as something that's, that's weird. They would be like just celebrating difference. Right. And so because we hadn't become that animated series, I felt like I'd failed. So to walk into that class and be dealing with all this emotion of my daughter going for the, to school for the first time and to see the book, that takes place in a classroom where a kid with a, vis a visible disability is going to school for the first time. It was this wild completion of the circle and it really helped to recenter me. And frankly, I I'm glad that Nickelodeon passed. I'm glad that Netflix passed because I wasn't in the right frame of mind yet to do it for it to become, I think it will become that eventually, but also if it doesn't, I'm okay with that because it's not why I'm doing it and it's not the ultimate definition of success. And I'm in a place now where I, I look at the capables and I say, well, what can I control? 
I can't control what network executive thinks this is viable. I can't control what animation studio wants to add this to their development slate. But what I can control is writing the books. And I can control engaging with an advisory board that ensures that the language we use in the imagery contributes to positive progress, not just in terms of disability, but in terms of gender norms, in terms of, um, you know, stereotypes that have existed in terms of, you know, race or gender or whatever it might be. That's what I'm committed to. And that's what I could control. And if somebody eventually sees it and says, hey, that should be an animated series. Great. Whatever. Amazing. But I'm not going to let that industry dictate the impact that I know we can have through our work. And that's what I'm committed to. It's beautiful. And what a journey. That's incredible. That's an incredible going through your own dark night of the soul to the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still, you know, I'll be totally transparent. I'm still figuring it out. You know, there's moments that are better than others. There are days that are better than others, you know? Um, but that's the, that's the truth for everybody. You know, and I think I became so used to like, I have to be okay all the time and I have to be on all the time. And so much of my identity became obviously tied to producing TV. And when that was sort of like pulled out from under me, like it was for so many millions of people around the world, no matter what your industry was, I was forced to sort of like find this new outlet. And that outlet, you know, was getting my book across the finish line. And as much as I tried to keep myself separate from it, because like you said earlier, you know, we're conduits. I've never thought of myself as, as a, the, the creator of the capables. I don't, I don't, I think the, the capables, the idea of it is so much bigger than one person. I can't ever, people want to call me the creator. It's the easiest word to use, but I just think of myself as a conduit for this story that wants to exist in the world. And how can I use my unique position in life to bring together the right people to do it? Um, and that's the way that, that I look at it. It's the way that I will, will, will always look at it. Um, so yeah, it's just been, it's been a wild journey. And then I think because my identity, as much as I tried to keep myself separate from the identity of the capables, it's impossible. Um, at least it was for the first book. I think for the books moving forward, it'll be easier. Um, because the first book is a reflection of my family story. You know, Ray is, modeled after my daughter and her mom and dad reflect my wife and my journey with, with Emerson and our own individual fears. So I think all the press I've done and anytime, not anytime, but a lot of the time when people want to talk to me about the capables, it's like, Oh, you're such an amazing dad. Like you are the perfect dad. And I'm like, that's not what this is. This isn't a hero dad story. And we need to shift away from that. And that's why I've been so adamant, like whenever I've done interviews, that one of our board members, Nicole Kelly, who has a congenital upper limb difference, that she always appears alongside me in those interviews because I don't want the, it's, it's an easy story to tell. This hero dad whose daughter was born with a disability and now he created this book. I'm a producer. I know it sells. It's a very easy story to tell, but there's more to it. And our mission is bigger than that. And that's why Nicole appears with me because she can speak to, you know, me this hero dad story that maybe they want to tell opens the door for now, Nicole, a person living with a disability who is a massive advocate to come and to educate people about the, dis you know, the disabled experience. And that's part of our mission as well is like to, to make sure that we are educating people and that we are having conversations just like IVF, just like depression, just like anxiety, all these conversations that have been pushed under the rug for so long that no, we're going to have this disability conversation and, and we're going to utilize this book as a way to, to talk about it. 
Mm -hmm. And I think as long as you understand, not everybody gets there that we are conduits. Um, You will, that will be your guiding light. And so um, that's the unfortunate thing about humans again, is that we want to champion up our gladiator, you know, and unfortunately it, it takes away from the connection that we all have with each other. We're all rising tides and all that stuff. We're all just, I mean, all those cliches, walking each other home, all of that thing. We're all part of one being, the yeah. being of humanity. Yeah. I and agree. I think as long as you keep that focus, you it will be very hard to steer you wrong. Even if it took you a while to get there, you know, or it took you some aha moments to get there. The fact of the matter is you got there and you understand that. Did you grow up in a, a perfectionist family? You know, that's a great question. Um, I am, obviously, I'm a perfectionist. I will own that uh, all day, every day. Uh, I, I I'm not know, accusing. No, I know. No, I you don't have to. You don't have to accuse me of that. I will. I, will I just started guest. Oh, yeah. And I, you know, I had a colleague of mine say something to me a few years back that has really stuck with me. And he said, and I, I know certain people say it differently, but he said, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Um, some people say perfect is the enemy of done. Um and that's something I've really tried to, to hold on to. And especially as it pertains to the capables, knowing that we'll never get it perfect, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to get it better um, every single book and to take the feedback that we receive from families, from you know adult individuals living with disabilities or people who aren't a part of the disability community who maybe didn't fully understand something we were talking about. Um, and it didn't, you know, their child was trying to grasp, they wanted to have the conversation, but our book just didn't lead them fully there. It's how can we take that feedback and make every individual book better? But as it pertains to my family, you know, I, I don't know if I ever thought about that until recently. Um, I think my mom is a perfectionist. Um, and I never, honestly, I'd never thought about my mom in that context until recently. And, and it sort of came to light for me. Um, I started this, this podcast with an actor friend of mine that was just for fun. We both, he's in between season one and two of his show on AMC called Kevin can F himself. And he was looking for a creative outlet. I was looking for a creative outlet. We both love Christmas. We started a Christmas podcast <laughs> and we're having so much fun. Um, and my mom listens to the show and she recently, uh, she was like, Hey, listen to the show. I'm fully caught up, but I have some notes. And I was like, and she started like talking about certain things. I was like, Oh, I think my mom is a perfectionist. I'm like, Oh, I get it now because I listen to stuff or I watch it. It's part of what makes me great at what I do as a producer, because I notice things that even my editors or story producers or whatever don't notice. And I know it bothers people so much because they'll show me a cut. I'm like, yeah, but it's weird because like at this point, they're sort of looking that direction and it just doesn't, you know, and they're like, I didn't ever even notice that. Or I'll be like, the music just is not loud enough. It just needs to be a little bit louder. Um, And so for my mom to like come to me with this show that I'm really proud of that I think we're doing a great job uh, at and, and to be like, Hey, I have some notes. I was like, Oh, this is funny because normally I'm that person. Uh, And so, you know, long story longer. Um, I do think that my mom is a perfectionist and I don't think I realized that until recently. And you mirrored that of course, growing up. And so you took, you took that on. I would argue, do you have siblings? 
I do. Yeah. I so my I, guess is you have uh, siblings that are absolutely opposite of you. <laughs> uh, yeah. My, so my parents got divorced when I was pretty young. I was about three years old when my parents got divorced and I was the only child from that, that marriage. So I grew up, you know, sort of split between the two houses and my dad had a son and a daughter. And then my mom had a son and a daughter and I spent the most time, you know, with my mom, uh, growing up. So you're right. Like my brother, Andrew, you know, he's, he's not a perfectionist and I don't mean that in a, in a negative sense. He just doesn't care, you know, yeah. as, as much as I do. And, and Aaron, who's the youngest, I would say she's probably a perfectionist about some things, but other things I feel like she doesn't, I definitely care the most. Um, and I don't know if that's an older sibling thing. I don't know what it is, but I definitely care the most and I'm the most committed to like, keeping the family like together and let's, you know, let's make sure like our traditions that we've started, like we got to continue them every year and we got to go to big bear every summer now. And we got to get our picture next to the donut shop. Like I'm, I'm really into that sort of stuff. And I think they like it, but they don't care about it <laughs> nearly as much as I and that is probably a first child behavior. Nah, I'm the youngest. So in my okay. family, of course, it's Oh, whatever, whatever she's doing, they, you know, the, the joke of by the time the third child comes along, the parents are nowhere to be found. They just don't leave the front door open. And <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, I'm even going through that now with our second child, you know, like there are things when our first kid would cry, like anytime we're like, Oh, Emerson, come here, you know? And now like, I realize that if she's crying, she's actually okay. So I'll be like, Riley, I'm sorry, but you just got to wait a little bit longer, you know, or, or when I get her dressed or undressed, you know, like with Emerson, I would be so delicate about pulling her arm out and all of her fingers and making sure they weren't getting bent in a weird way. And now with Riley, I'm just like, boop, 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 throw in the bath. Like, here we go, kid. Um, it is so, I think it's because you don't know and you are terrified that you're going to break this human being. And then you realize you didn't. And so you just sort of approach it differently. And now I start to get why, you know, being the oldest, you don't understand why, why did I have a curfew? Why was my mom like always, you know, on me about my homework and all these sorts of things. And then my siblings come along and they <laughs> don't have a curfew or girls get to go into their room or whatever. I'm like, what is happening here? Like, <laughs> this was not the mom that I had growing up. Um, but I also think it's just a byproduct of the child, you know, is that every child, I think my mom parented all three of us differently. Um, and I think that was just a reflection of what she saw in us that maybe was a reflection of her, um, and what she thought we needed and would benefit from the most. Well, and all children have a different personality. I mean, the kids in my family couldn't be more different. There are certain similarities, but for the most part, wildly different. It's, yeah. it's fascinating how we come into the world, who we are. Yeah. And you can't. And it's that whole nature versus nurture thing. You know, like I've had to sort of catch myself a couple of times because our second daughter looks a lot like our first daughter did when she was a, a newborn and an infant and she'll make similar sounds to her. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, you know, your sister used to make that sound. I'm like, I got to stop that because it Riley needs her own identity in, in this world, you know? And when we were talking about names uh, for Riley, um, my wife really liked the middle name Ray. Um, and I, and I thought it sounded great too. Riley Ray sounded great, but that's the name of the hero character in my first book. And I said, I was like, you know, I feel like we're, we're already going to have this 
time in our lives as parents when our younger daughter is going to discover that I wrote a, a book, a series that was, you know, that came as a result of Emerson. And if she finds out that her middle name is the same name as the hero character, she'd be like, oh, great. So you wrote Emmy a book and you gave me that character's name. Fantastic. Um, so we changed it to Riley May is, uh, is, is her name, uh, which sounds still sounds great. Um, because I want Riley to have her own story. And people ask me all the time, they're like, Oh, well, are you going to write a book for Riley as well? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> I would love to. Um, but I, you know, if that comes to me creatively, then, then yes. But I also feel like maybe there'll be something else that her and I will share as our connection that that is ours and ours alone. And it doesn't feel like I'm just doing this, this, so that way she feels like she got something too, you know, she'll get her own experiences with you and it's, it's okay. You know, whatever that's going to be. And kids, kids are a great deal more resilient than we give them credit for. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I've learned that in spades, you know, with, with our daughter, you know, she had, she had surgery earlier this year and it was one of, you know, that was another decision we had to, to go through, you know, was making this decision because the way that her, her hand had formed was, uh, she was born with, with two fingers on, on her right hand and, um, and they were syndactyly. So they were all conjoined. Um, and so the surgeon that we saw, the hand specialist had recommended that we essentially remove the, the third of a finger that grew and then sort of, um, remove a, or cut a bunch of skin to open it up so she could have, be able to pinch, um, with her right hand. And, I knew from like a functionality standpoint that it was going to be very beneficial for her, but to be faced with this decision of your child, your first child, your very young child um, being put under anesthesia and and having surgery, that's terrifying. Um, And further, the idea of making a decision for a human's life that impacts the rest of her life that that human has no say in was, that was the hardest part for me of, of the whole experience, but that's part of being a parent, right? It's like, you gotta, you've got to make tough decisions sometimes. And, um, but it came from a place of love. And I know that we asked every question we could possibly ask and we got second and third and fourth opinions and all this stuff. And everyone agreed with, with the decision. So yeah, it's like nothing can prepare you for what you go through as a parent. There'll be plenty of reasons for her to hate you when she hits 16. So don't worry. Oh yeah. I can't wait for her to hate the book. That that's my, um, that, I, cause I know that's going to come. She'll be like, you did what? Oh my God, dad. It's so embarrassing. Why did you do that? Um, you know, uh, but it's all good. It's all good. I know eventually she will love me. And so, so I, I embrace that and she's already giving us a little bit of a, a dose of that lately. Cause she's really in this three major phase right yeah, now. Yeah, sure. One day she loves me or one hour she loves me. And then next hour she just wants to scream in my face. So, um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that plays out over the next 15 years. Oh, yes, for sure. I'm curious, and this might be uh, uh, too personal, but for your yours and your wife's relationship during such stress, going through that emotional upheaval, many, many relationships don't survive things like that. What do you attribute to having survived that with your wife and because I think a lot of people would like to have that information <laughs> to help yeah. themselves, you know. <laughs> I, I wish there was, um, I wish there was some sort of worksheet that I could like send to everybody. Uh, I think the one thing that that I took out of it that I have held on to and, and shared with other parents, whether or not they're facing a challenging situation w- with a pregnancy or with a child, is that 
um, it's important to remember that everything that your partner is doing and saying is coming from the exact same place as you. And that is from a love like they've never known for this human being and an interest in that human being having the best life they can possibly have. And you both are aligned on that. No matter how you, you think you get there or how they think you get there, you are aligned on that. And I think if you can keep that in mind, that will help dramatically, no matter what you're going through. I think for my wife and, and, and me specifically, we had gone through obviously an intense journey with trying to get pregnant anyway. So we'd already been through some hardships and um, actually pretty much the day my, my wife started medications for IVF, we had traveled um, to London on, on New Year's Eve of 2018 because uh, my, my sister uh, was, was pregnant and, and um, we were the godparents. And so we flew out there to be there for the birth and uh, she was born on New Year's Day. Um, and I'll say that if you've experienced trauma as it relates to children, just fast forward, you know, 15, 30 seconds here or whatever. But um, our niece passed away eight days after she was born. Uh, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And it was, yeah, it was very unexpected. Uh, she had a, a hole in her heart that was, that was undiagnosed. And, um, and even after she was born, like nobody said anything. It wasn't until about 12 hours after she was born that my, my sister had said, you know, I, I feel like there's something wrong with the way my baby's crying. And so they took her, you know, and did some tests. And that's when they discovered the hole in her heart. And then, you know, over eight days and three different uh, NICUs throughout London, you know, we, we went through a very intense experience and it was hopefully the most challenging thing that I'll ever go through in my life. Um, and so I think because my wife and I had been in these impossible to describe situations as it pertains to uh, childbirth and trauma and all these sorts of things, I think we had a trust in one another that, you know, not to say we wouldn't have had otherwise, but I can't say because that's the story that that is ours. Um, and so I think when we found out about Emerson and her limb difference, I don't think either one of us, at least in that moment, um, were traumatized. Um, I think we responded with, okay, this is our reality. What are we going to do about it? And we embarked on this mission of, of educating ourselves and connecting ourselves to, to community um, and it hasn't been until recently that really, I think my own personal, uh, emotions tied to it and my own personal anger, I'm not angry that my daughter has a disability. I'm angry that she has to go through life with people who aren't nice. Um, and I'm not disappointed that she has a disability, but I'm disappointed in the world that, that we, that we live in, you know, and that's something I've had to process. And honestly, it wasn't until she was born that I think even the full extent of the trauma of losing our niece even hit me um, because I couldn't possibly know what it would feel like to lose a child until I had one of my own. And I think that's really when that emotion hit me um, was when, when Emerson was born and it was really hard. You know, it's so hard to this day, you know, the, the first couple of years, especially when she was learning to walk, man, I was I would follow her around like a hawk all the time because I was just terrified of her falling and hurting herself. And I think that was a byproduct of loss. Um, and it's, you know, it's a funny thing, trauma and sort of how it manifests for you in your life. And, and just you're in a situation like that. It's just, it, it, 
molds and shapes how you parent. Um, and you know, it took time to get to a point where I was like, okay, she is, she is safe. But I think to an extent, um, Stephen Colbert talks about this a lot. Um, cause he lost his, his dad and his brothers to a, to a plane accident is he said, you know, with trauma, it, it, it doesn't break you, but it fractures you. Um, and the pieces can get put back together, but there's still cracks. Right. Um, and I think that's how I've chosen to, to sort of identify with, with those feelings for me is that that trauma will never go away. Um, it will always be a part of me. There will always be those cracks in me, but I can still be a whole person, um, you know, in, in the long run. And, you know, so I know that wasn't necessarily your question, but, or an answer to your question, but I think for us, I only know what we went through and how we navigated based off of our life and our life involved a lot of challenging stuff. And I think it laid the foundation for the way we navigated it. And I would just say to anyone out there who is a parent or is, as a partner and you're just going through a challenging situation, I think what's important is to find the common ground that you have together because we all communicate so differently. We all, whether it's verbally or facial expressions or whatever it might be. Um, and I think if you can at least have a conversation to identify what your common interest is, it will help you a lot when you're having those difficult situations and navigating those difficult times to figure out how you get through it and to know that that person, what they're saying is not an attack on you and the way that you're approaching it. It's just who they are. And they're just trying to get to the same end game that you are. Yeah. I think that's excellent advice. You know, I wasn't planning to talk about anxiety and depression, but, uh, and I'm sure if my publicist was on here, she'd be like, what are you doing right now? That's powerful. That is the most powerful thing. I think because we're being trained to not talk about these places, we're just hurting each other. You know, I really truly believe that. And that's why when I say, you know, I'm glad you're on the planet, it's because you're saying that who knows what that ripple will create. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we are, we're all putting on a show, yeah. you know, and, and that show for a lot of people is very detrimental to their overall well-being. I agree. Um, whatever, you know, if your show is, I'm great everything's fine, you know, because when I first started, you know, I know you probably have to go, but like when anxiety and depression first started like presenting for me, I got incredibly anxious when I would be on social media, you know, and people would be posting, you know, pictures of themselves out, like having drinks at three o'clock on a Wednesday or whatever. And I'd be like, Oh, what trauma are you masking? Is like what the narrative (laughs) that would sort of go on in my mind. And so I started like projecting trauma that I thought other people were experiencing onto a story. But then I was like getting sad about it because I was in this deep sort of abyss of my own and the thought of other people feeling what I was feeling or masking what I was feeling and potentially making whatever they were going to have to face a month or whatever down the line, even more intense. It really started making me super anxious. Um, and I don't even know if that's their reality. I don't even know if that's their story. I don't even know if that's why they're out having a drink at three o'clock on a, on a Wednesday. Um, but I was writing that story and it was impacting my life in like a really, really negative way. Um, so that's why like, I went off social media for a month and just didn't, I didn't go on Facebook. I didn't go on Instagram. I was just off of it because- Probably I, I never felt it. better too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was tough because- I think if I had had 
like a normal job to go to five days a week or whatever. And I was still having human interaction other than just my wife and my kids and like my folks or whatever. Um, I don't think it would have been as challenging um, because the reality is, you know, because I've been working many shows I've worked on, I've worked on from home, you know, since April of last year. And so I've just been in this like constant groundhog day every single day. And I'm having the same conversations with the same people over and over again. And so I think social media made me feel like I was able to talk about something other than we're going grocery shopping today. We're going to go to the park, you know, like whatever it was. And, um, but it was also good for me to remove that noise, I think from my life so I could focus on my home and realize like, Oh, are there things there that here that we need to work on? Um, and you know, had that noise not gone away, I don't, I don't think we would have had some conversations that we've needed to have. I've noticed on, especially on Twitter, that there's there's a constant stream of the photo, blah blah blah, that you think was this is actually this, but it's it only takes what is that old saying? It takes a lie a second to get all the way around the world while the truth is still putting on its pants. Yeah, and and people, I think to your point is that their, their pain, they're carrying around their pain, even if it's being masked as anger or fear. And so they're quick to believe whatever it is they're seeing, especially if it's painting something or someone in a negative light, instead of taking a step back and thinking, Oh, is someone trying to manipulate my feelings or my thoughts, which is most of social media for better or for worse. Trying to manipulate their own, you know, that that's a huge part of it as well Is like, are they just putting this out to make, themselves feel better about where they're at. I do have my life together. I don't have anything to be sad about or anxious about or whatever. And if I, and if people tap on it and like it, then they like that I'm this person, you know? And I think that's a lot of what happened with us releasing the book is that there was so much energy around the release and then all the press we were doing. And, you know, then all these meetings that started happening that, you know, when mid May came around and it started getting a little quiet, I was like, uh, who am I? What am I doing? Um, if this book is not a thing, what, what am I other than like a dad and a husband, which is not a bad thing to be, but I've never had to sit with just that in my life. And that was, um, that was, uh, yeah, it was really hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, meditative practice talks about that all the time. You know, when you're sitting with your own thoughts and the things that go by that you have to ignore. Mm-hmm. and not attached to, yeah. which for me, I don't know about you, but my brain is like, Brrr! so it's very hard to not follow the thought wherever it goes. But the more you practice that, I think it bleeds into the rest of your life and that yeah. you don't jump on the runaway train of thought. Because mm-hmm. it, it can be terrifying. You can feel like your your world is just like everything you know is like slipping out from underneath you and it's all spinning around and you're like, what do I hold on to? And like in the beginning, when I first started on this journey, you know, that I've been on for the last, I don't know, six months now, it was because I'm such a fixer, as I talked about earlier, I just wanted to fix it. I just wanted to make myself better and figure out, I just needed more sleep or I just needed no alcohol for a, a month, no, no alcohol, no coffee. You know, and I was like trying to find all these solutions or go to the doctor. Maybe I have diabetes. Maybe that's why I'm feeling so like agitated or, you know, I was trying to find an answer where I could just fix it and just get better as, as I wanted to be. But then I realized that it was a byproduct of three and a half years of my life. And it took me a long time to realize that. And it, if it took three and a half years for me to get there, I couldn't expect 
to just one week later or whatever amount of time later to just be better. Um, and, and it's been super, super challenging. Um, because I just, you know, like I said, when we were chatting, I said, I, I wanted to get, I just wanted to feel normal again. But I think for me, normal was this previous version of myself, but I couldn't go back to that previous version of myself because that previous version led me to where I ended. And so I had to make changes and I had to face my issues, you know, um, and that's terrifying. I was just having yeah, a what if the previous version of yourself was a hologram in order for you to just function. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. That, that's a, that's a wild thing to think about and to be like, was I really that happy or was I convincing myself I was that happy because I didn't want to feel the full extent of the sadness, uh, or the pain or the fear or whatever was there. And then you remove all of these stimulants, you know, the, the coffee to get me up in the morning, the, you know, the glass of wine or whatever to chill me out in the evening. And you remove all those things that it help you maintain like homeostasis, like a baseline. And then you're like, oh my gosh. And you're like going up and down and up and down all day long because these things that help to balance you are all of a sudden gone. It's like, it, it threw me into a, a tailspin. Um, and I'm so glad to not be there anymore. I think more so what I live with now is the fear of going back. Um, and if anything like feels similar to what I felt four months ago or whatever, it's learning to manage feel the, the fear that's come up, but also being able to be logical and saying, this isn't that, um, you know, cause for me, like depression manifests as like extreme fatigue and like, uh, just feeling out of it, like mentally, like I'm just, I'm physically there, but like mentally I'm just spaced out, but I have a newborn. So of course I'm tired and spaced out all the time. So it's like trying to, it, it, it takes so much work. And I didn't understand that until I went through it on my own. And now it's given me like such a, um, a passion for mental health, um, and doing whatever I can to help empower people who are going through that journey. I'm fortunate that this is the first experience I've had with it. You know, a lot of people, it's their entire lives. Um, mm -hmm. and so from that standpoint, it's like, my gosh, I, I just, I, I feel for those people in such a real way. Well, I'm glad you also are using the tools around you, whether it's having conversations like this one, going to see a professional, yeah, you know, going into the dark places so you can flush them with the light. Oh my gosh. It's, it, it's hard going to the dark places. Cause you're like hot. I know it gets so deep in and you're like, how do I get out of here? And you're all, sometimes you just find yourself all day long, just trying to claw your way out. Do you know that that parable about the the man walking the the man walks along and he falls in the hole? You know that story? I don't know if I do. A man's walking along and he falls into a deep hole, and he doesn't know how to get out. And a priest comes by, and he says, "Father, Father, I've fallen in the hole." And so the priest says a prayer over him and walks along. And then a doctor comes along, and the man yells up. Doctor, doctor, I've fallen in a hole. I need help getting out. So the doctor writes a prescription and throws it down the hole and keeps walking. And then his friend comes along and he says, help me, help me. I can't get out. And so the friend crawls down into the hole. Mm. 
And the man says, what are you doing now? We'll both be in this hole. And he says, well, I've been in the hole before and I know the way out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I don't know if you've dealt with this or whatever, but like for me, when I was in the hole, even though people would be like, I've been there before, I couldn't believe them. Mm. I couldn't, my, my logic part of my brain was like so twisted because I felt like everything I knew had sort of been pulled out from underneath me that the idea of anyone in the history of ever feeling like I felt and me describing what I was feeling them saying, yeah, yeah, I know that feeling. You're like, no, 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 you don't. You don't know what I'm walking around with running, bouncing around in my head all day long. And, and that's, I think that is, at least for me, that's the hardest part of, about it is that you can't ever know. You because you can't be in somebody else's mind. No, absolutely not. But the empathy, it's where empathy comes in to understand and listening. I mean, I think there, as you put it, you were a fixer. And I think to understand that some things can't be fixed, but you can be present. So I like to think of the man crawling, the the friend crawling down in the hole is just going to sit there with them and listen and not try and fix anything, but just say, look, I've been in this situation. And I'm here for you. You're not alone. Just that simple feeling of being, not being alone. You know, the, yeah. the, what is the Frank Herbert fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death, anxiety and fear there and hate. They're all, they're all in bed together. And our yeah. brain wants to, when it's in those dark places is lying to us. It's saying there's no one else that feels this way. Mm. You're totally by yourself. You're totally alone. You know, those voices will be our undoing. Right. And I think, you know, what I, I I meant to mention this earlier when we were talking about sort of the last two years and how my psychiatrist had told me that, you know, like my demographic is, you know, the majority of people they're seeing right now is I think part of the reason why that is, is happening. So before the pandemic, you know, our lives had, most of our lives had a pattern to it, right? You, a lot of people went to work and you left at such and such time and you drove on this freeway or you rode on that train and it took you X amount of time and you saw all these people and then you would do it again at the end of the day and you go home and boom, you got a pattern. Um, and whether or not your industry shut down, your pattern changed. For a lot of people, it just became, I don't drive to work anymore. I just walk to my guest room or out to my garage or wherever has become sort of my, my office now. And I think when you know our brains like patterns and I think once those patterns that we became so used to that became really safe for us went away, our brains started needed new patterns to develop. And I think for a lot of people, it became this pattern of anxiety. It became this pattern of depression to where it became, whether you realized it was happening or not. And I think that's what happened with me is it was happening and I didn't even recognize it. And then when I tried to do something about it, my brain started fighting against me because it had become this new pattern that it had gotten so used to and so comfortable with. And to take it away, it was like, no, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail to keep this here because this is something we can depend on. Your industry coming back or not is not something you can depend upon. You're, you're the child that your wife is pregnant with. You've seen how that's worked out in the past. You can't depend on this pregnancy going smoothly and the baby being born and everything being fine. You've seen how that story plays out the other way. And I think that's where I sort of got. Um, 
And it's so wild how your brain will do whatever it sort of has to do to reinforce that pattern um, and to keep you there in that space. And that's where, you know, obviously therapy is incredibly helpful, but being mindful about other patterns that you can reestablish in your life. Like my therapist brought this up with me early on. She goes, you don't have patterns in your life. You don't have a schedule in your life right now. She goes, you get up when your child gets up and, you know, then your day sort of just unfolds from there. She goes, whatever you need to do, schedule your workout every day, schedule your shower every day, give yourself some sort of pattern so your brain can have something else to latch onto to be like, this is safe and predictable. Um, and it sort of goes back to what I was talking about with the capables and all this disappointment that was sort of happening around, okay, this you know network wants your show and that network's interested in this studio and blah, blah, blah. And then all of them go away and you're like, ah, you know, you get so frustrated, you know, you get, you, you go to like the top of the mountain and then all of a sudden you come tumbling down, back down the mountain. And so for me, it was like, okay, I can never control that. Whether they, whether it becomes an animated show or not, I can never control it, but I can control the books. So I'm going to focus on what I can control rather than what I can't. Um, and that's been really, really helpful for me. Yeah, it's such good advice about creating pattern. I, I didn't think about that before, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's to easier do. said than done. Uh, yeah, totally. Because totally. when that idea hit me a few months ago, I remember I was I was on a run or something, and I and I thought of it, and I was like, "Oh, finally, I have my breakthrough. I'll wake up tomorrow, and I'll be totally fine." And <laughs> then I woke up the next day, and I felt like crap again. I was like, "Ah, like, ah. I, I know." It's, it's a journey. It's a lifelong journey, which is a major bummer, but it certainly seems to be the case and we anyway. can find moments of serenity, but, yeah, and yeah. they may last longer and longer and longer, but we have to, we also have to go through a lot of crap, unfortunately. Oh my gosh. Yes, we do. Danny, tell people how they might find you in the book. Uh, well, if you, if you want to find me, uh, you can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Danny Jordan. Um, I'm also, I think at underscore Danny Jordan on Twitter and, and TikTok, And then the book, which is much more important to me, you can find on all social media channels at the capables or you can go to the capables.com. Or if you're an Amazon person, you can go there as well. And I, if you live outside of the U S I highly advise you going to Amazon because it will be a lot cheaper for you to get our book because they can ship things a lot uh, more cheaply than I can. So, um, that's where you can find us, um, to learn more about, uh, what we're doing. We've got some exciting stuff coming up with the series. So, you know, if you want to learn more about the work we're doing and, and support us, that's, that's where you can do that. Thank you for this conversation. It's really, you're quite something. And uh, I think that the world is better. Aww. Not just because of you, but also because of your, your family and the awareness, you know, of, of what potentiality means. Mm -hmm. And that's great, you know? Yeah. And it does beget other things. This conversation will be heard by people and someone somewhere will think, Oh, you know what? I have a story to tell about someone who maybe is overlooked or disenfranchised. And it just, it creates more of that space. And eventually that love will be the norm. Yeah. Eventually. Be, That's what we're all heading toward. A hundred percent. Just because other people are doing the work doesn't mean you shouldn't. Um, just because the conversation is taking place doesn't mean we don't need to have more of it. And that was something I had to recognize on my own is that when we first released the book and I'll sort of wrap this up with this thought is that because we got featured on, you know, the local Fox affiliate and entrepreneur magazine, all these things, I was like, Oh, everybody in the world knows about the capables. Now I don't need to do, you know, it's either they want to buy it or they don't. And that's so not the right way to, to look at it. 
um, these conversations that we're having, they need to continue to happen and they need to become the norm. So if you feel compelled to talk about something and, and you feel a passion about it, find your medium, find the way that you go about it. It may not be a podcast for you. It may not be a children's book for you. It might just be talking to your best friend or to a friend at school or whatever it might be. Conversation is how we learn and how we educate um, each other. And, and more importantly, how we educate ourselves. So just that's why I love what you do here. Cause I love conversation. And I think, you know, hopefully something positive will, will come out of it. Thank you. I I'm, I'm on that train too. And I do believe in the power of one. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. One can be a lot. Yeah. Thank you, Danny, for this. And thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, take care of each other. Okay. Bye. Yeah. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.